Friends, if you have your Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to open with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are coming very near to the end of a series of messages from Peter's letter to Christians in the Roman Empire, five provinces in particular in the north edge of modern-day Turkey along the Black Sea. And as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, Peter is previewing for them a difficult time is coming into their lives. He calls it a fiery ordeal. It's a wide persecution, not a localized persecution as Christians were already at this time accustomed to undergoing from time to time. But as we mentioned over the last few weeks, at this pivotal point in church history, the church of Jesus Christ, Christians who are now known by that name, are coming out from the shadow of Judaism. As we were seen as a subset of Judaism with Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, uh, Christianity was able to operate freely. It was a tolerated, officially tolerated religion in the Roman Empire. But now in this, this era, it's coming to be seen as a separate religion that does not have authorization, and Christians are going to be persecuted uh, from the top down by government and local governments. It'll be uh, economic in nature, but it'll also entail prison time, even the loss of life of the Christians. So Peter is preparing the church for persecution. He's preparing them for persecution. He's done that by reminding them that this world is not our home. We are sojourners. We're travelers. We pass through this life rather than putting down our roots and this life being the end-all and be-all for the believers of Jesus. For us, this is on the road home. We're not home yet, and we won't be until we're in the kingdom of God and see Jesus face-to-face. But Peter is preparing us. And one of the ways he does that in the end of this letter, as we saw last week in chapter 5, Peter encourages the elders in the church. Elder means basically the older believers, the senior saints, those who have experience walking with God and His faithfulness. It's that experience and the faithfulness that they've had in their walk with God that is going to see them through this difficult time. Elders also, though, another word for the leaders, the pastors and the shepherds, and they in particular in the time of persecution will be targets. They were always the targets from the time of the Roman Empire to the Cold War. I've met many leaders, deacons and pastors in uh, Russia over the years that under the Soviet Union, they spent some of them decades in prison apart from their church families. They were going to be targets. So Peter was encouraging them and building them up that they had their houses in order spiritually before they entered into this time of persecution. But now Peter turns his attention to the rest of us, all Christians in general. He has uh, got teaching for each one of us this morning. And it's interesting as he approaches it and how he approaches it, it's not just a to-do list. But he looks at the heart. It's a character issue. It's the character of your faith. It's your heart in relation to God that will see you through the hardest times. It was true in Peter's day, and it's true today. But I've called this message, Humble, Not Humiliated. (laughs) Jesus was humble, and they sought even to humiliate him at the cross but they couldn't. He was humble, but he wasn't humiliated. 
Humiliated is what somebody does to you to debase you, to tear you down, to uh, make themselves seem better by making you seem lower. Public humiliation is a common fear. They say that people fear speaking in public, something I'm doing right now, more than most people fear death. And I wonder about that. Those of us who speak in public, we're not really put together that way. It's not a strength. It's just who we are. That's not a fear that we have. But I understand humiliation. As a pastor, you have to have a high tolerance for embarrassment. The things that you do, you can't be embarrassed about because it's lived in public. But there have been times in my life, too numerous to to think of, that I have felt humiliated. Not in ministry, but just as a kid growing up. I'll just pick one at random. (laughs) I was about 14 years old, one of my last years of playing organized baseball. We played Little League, and we were playing the highest level. It was like high school ball in a league called Pacific Pee Wee. Now, Pacific Pee Wee sounds kind of like a small potatoes, but it was a wonderful league. In fact, we were the last youth baseball leagues that still allowed us to wear metal cleats. So you could slide into second base and do some real damage to the second baseman. It was good, hard baseball. I can't claim that I ever did any damage at the plate. I was a terrible hitter. Once the boys got big enough and strong enough to throw fastballs and curveballs, I was out to lunch. I just stood there and, and, and just prayed for a walk. Almost it was not a good sight. In the field, I was okay, but at the plate, not so good. That's not the humiliation that I remember, though. It was a game. <clears throat> we were having a big inning, just like our Genesis softball team. We were having a big inning, and even Powell, even number 13, first baseman, I made it all the way to third base. That was a big deal. I hadn't been to third base that year. <laughs> that was my first time on third base. You know, I had gotten on. I probably got on with a walk. I can't remember that part of the story. I probably walked to first, and then a single. I was at second, and uh, then another uh, another event, a walk or a single, moved me to third. Bases loaded. Bases loaded. Oh, their pitcher was upset, and he was throwing over to first, trying to pick off our, our runner on first base. And I wasn't paying close enough attention because at one point they tagged him out and he walked directly back to our dugout. But I was just so excited to be on third base, taking it all in. I hadn't really noticed it. I don't know to this day how I didn't notice the man at first base was no longer the runner there. He was out. There was only runners on second and third. The man at the plate, our teammate, he walked. In my mind, I was going home. And so that man, he goes down to first, and as he's trotting down, the pitcher and the catcher, they're all there, they throws the ball out, and they're all watching that guy go down to first. Meanwhile, I'm trotting from third base all the way home. Actually, I was stealing home base. I I didn't have a free pass to go home, but I'm trotting home, and I start to hear this funny murmur, people gasping, what is this knucklehead doing? What What's going on? Is this some trick play? What's happening? And even the pitcher standing there holding the ball, he's wondering, he's looking at me, and he looks over, and he's wondering, did someone call timeout? Everybody's doing one of these. Well, I'm just like, this is the first time I'm going to touch home plate. 
I haven't scored a run all year. It's, it's so exciting. I'm thrilled. Powell's coming home. Finally, the pitcher just kind of shrugs his shoulder, whips the ball to the catcher. The catcher touches me on the chest. I'm saying, get out of here. What are you talking about? I, 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 I'm, it's a walk. I'm coming home. The umpire yells, out. It all comes clear to me <laughs> in an instant. Inning was over. Killed the rally. Oh, boy. I didn't live that down the rest of the year. In fact, I think I'm going to end the sermon now because I'm so flustered by that event. I was humiliated. Humiliated. But that's not what Peter talks about. He's not talking about humiliation. Something similar, the word has the same root. He's talking about humility, humbleness. It's a biblical virtue that Peter says is important for the church of Jesus. Christian humility. In fact, Peter says it is the spiritual clothing, it's the social fabric of the spiritual clothing the Christians should wear in our relationships with one another. Christian humility. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Peter writes, Young men, he's talked to the elders, now he's talking to the younger people in the congregation. Young men, in the same way, he's given directions to the elders, now to the young men. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. I like this verse so far. Keep it going. But then he broadens it. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility. What does that mean to be humble? Now, interestingly, it was very interesting to me this week as I studied the roots of the word in Hebrew and Greek, the word for humbleness and humility, is that these words... They weren't always that popular. Just as humbleness is not a popular virtue today, nobody wants humility. They feel they would be humiliated. They would be brought down. That would be beneath them. It would hurt our selfish, arrogant pride. In the ancient world, there were very similar concepts. In fact, in the Old Testament, there is a word. The Hebrew word is kana, and kana means to conquer, to subdue, to humble a city, a town, an individual. You conquer them and you lay them low. They're defeated. They must submit. That was the root of humility. So we recognize that God was powerful and we were humble in His sight because we're nothing compared to the Creator God. But that's the thought, to subdue and humble somebody, to make them submit. So while the people of faith saw that as a positive thing to submit your life to God. Society in general didn't look very highly on it. It meant you were defeated, you were conquered, you were subdued. That's an interesting root. So it shouldn't surprise us when we come to the New Testament and the language is no longer Hebrew, it's Greek. And the word that they use in Greek is tapinos. Tapinos, in fact, universally in Greek at the time of Jesus, was negative. Do you understand that? There was no lovable, humble person. 
To be humble was a negative situation. It was, it meant, literally it meant lowly, low, low-born, base, looked down upon. And people who were tapinos were generally slaves and they were groveling before their betters. Can you imagine a groveling slave before your better? That's not the Christian idea of humility at all. In fact, it was the church of Jesus using this word, taking a word that was seen universally negative and using it as a Christian virtue with Jesus as the example changed the way the world thinks of humility. We now see it as a positive thing coming from an area of truth and honesty about ourselves and understanding those around us, seeing ourselves in a truthful light. A person who is truly humble is grounded. How did it change from a virtue or from a negative thing to a virtue? Let's look at a few verses to give us some idea. Again, Romans chapter 12, I think, is a good place to start. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verses 3 and 4. We're told there, Paul writes, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Now that's the beginning of true humility, to understand who you really are. Paul says, don't have an inflated idea of your importance. Be truthful about yourself. And Paul's not saying tear yourself down and be that groveling slave because this is in the context of God giving spiritual gifts. To say that you are a worthless slave would say that God's child, his beloved child, whom he has gifted with spiritual gifts is of no account. And that's not true. We're to understand that we are all different and gifted, equally loved in God's sight. It's a true, honest appraisal of ourselves. So we don't look up that somebody is so much better than us because their gift is different. We tend to look at public gifts like speaking and singing and worship leading as better than our gifts. But let me tell you, if you have the gifts of help or hospitality... I believe there will be far more reward in heaven for you than for those of us who use our gifts occasionally and in public. Because in public, you oftentimes are, receive your reward in this life, don't you? Oh, good sermon, pastor, or great set. That worship set was awesome. Well, that's pretty much the reward you're going to get. Heaven is in the business of rewarding those good things that this world does not value. All of the things that you do that nobody sees, even a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, that's the reward in heaven that it focuses on. It begins with who we are. Not too high, not too low. I'm a sinner, forgiven. I'm saved by grace. I have nothing to look down on anybody else for. We are both sinners, bound for hell, and only by the grace of Jesus have I been saved and adopted into the very family of God. For this we rejoice. But we're humble. We're honest about where we come from. We're not holier than thou, and we don't look down on others. In fact, people who begin at that place of being honest, we begin to see not only am I saved by grace, but everybody else is valued by God as well. So I begin to 
look at them and to love them as God loves them. That's the key to Paul's writing in Philippians chapter 2, that key passage on Christian humility. Paul writes in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, doesn't mean you neglect yourself, your family, or others, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The Creator came not to lord it over others, but to seek and save the lost and to serve. Jesus lived His life as a servant. Again, the key to humility in Old and New Testament is recognizing that there is a God and it's not me. That it's His will, not my own personal will that's most important for my life and to be obedient to His will. As Paul says again in Philippians chapter 2, a little further down in that powerful passage, Jesus' obedience, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Completely obedient and humble to the will of God. Jesus not only taught humility, but he was our example par excellence of humility. On the cover of our bulletin is that key point. Even to the very eve of his arrest and crucifixion. He was teaching servanthood and humility as he came in and his disciples were still too proud to wash each other's feet. It was beneath them. Look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. Consider others more important than yourself in these cases. So Jesus took off his master's robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. Verse 12 says, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, master, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus, a servant, born out of humility. Humility, the virtue, became one of forgiveness, of loving service for others. It's powerful. It's powerful. John Newton, man best known for writing the, perhaps the greatest hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace former slave trader, worked on a slave ship, later owned slave ships, was taken as a slave himself for a time, repented of his sin, was born again, didn't deserve it. It was a free gift. It was all by God's amazing grace. Born in 1725, John Newton died in 1807. And speaking of humility, he wrote this, I am persuaded that love and humility are the highest attainments in the school of Christ and the brightest evidences 
that he is indeed our master. (laughs) When you meet a loving, humble Christian, you have met a mature Christian. Not one that has the greatest knowledge, the flashiest gifts. A humble, loving servant is a Christ-like believer. Newton was right on the money there. At the end of that passage, though, if you think back, Peter quoted, and this is one of only a couple places in the New Testament where it is quoted, and it's quoted by both Peter and it's quoted by James in the book of James. They both quote Proverbs 3.34 that God, God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. Let's look at that a little more closely. God exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. The proud he brings down, the humble he lifts up. This is God's way. This is the economy of God. Peter continues another single verse we look at, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Peter restates Proverbs 3.34 in his own language. Humble yourselves. Recognize that your life is a gift, that there is a God and it's not you, and you let God do His thing and you follow His will. Humble yourself, because in due time He will exalt you. Now, I'm glad Peter put that in because, friends, sometimes that exaltation does not happen in this life. I believe the people up at the head of the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb are going to be people that you and I have never heard of. People throughout church history, not the Billy Sundays, Billy Grahams, Mother Teresas, people who become bywords for Christian service or activity because we've heard of them and we've applauded them. But they will be those saints who are humble, who act in love, on behalf of others. It won't be the ones that with great religious pride abase themselves. We've seen many of those movements in church history. Franciscans are probably one of the better examples of it. Some of them at least, I think, did it for the right reasons. Take vows of poverty and are so proud of their vows of poverty. it's, It's oxymoronic. We're proud of our humility. We take great pride in how humble our lives are. People did it as hermits. They lived in caves. There was a time in the uh, Byzantine Empire where the greatest uh, people examples of spiritual humility, they didn't even live in a cave. They lived on top of a pillar, sometimes for 20, 30 years, up on top of a pillar, out in the elements. Strange. But they were quite proud of that. In fact, reading about humility... In the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, my go-to source, a huge scholarly work, the, the new International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says this of that type of false humility. It says, The self-abasement whose end is some claim upon God or some favorable comparison with the neighbor is condemned. I'm so humble. See me in comparison to my neighbor. Aren't I humble? And God's going to exalt me now. The exaltation, humility is not a means to the exaltation. It's the end in itself, to be like Jesus, to love like Jesus. 
That kind of humility is at bottom religious pride. The Christian virtue makes no claim on God, but submits to the reign and rule of God in our lives. It makes no claim over against the brother, but serves, forgives, and loves the brother, and thus serves the harmony and peace of the new community, the church. When we act in humility toward one another, churches don't split. Churches don't fight. We're not trying to get our way. That's not the way of humility. We're trying to find the mind of Christ together. And we're all humble enough to recognize that we may not have every issue the right end of the stick, that we may be open to having our minds changed by somebody else who understands God's will a little better than we do. We don't set people up as our idols, as the TV preachers in their, in their thousands of dollar suits. They're not our example of Christ-likeness. It's humble, loving, forgiving servants, many of whom the world will never know and certainly won't celebrate. These are the people that we want to be like because they're like Jesus. But that biblical precedent, God despises the proud because pride is the root of sin. It was Adam and Eve wanting to be like God, knowing good from evil, and uh, in, in their pride they fell. And so much of our sin is rooted in self. Self is rooted in pride. Proverbs, again, speaks in a number of places. Look at Proverbs fifteen thirty three and eighteen twelve. The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. Humility comes before honor. God exalts the humble. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Pride goeth before the fall, the old King James said. But it's so true. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus told an amazing story. I love it. It's, it's called a parable, but it's, Luke calls it a parable, but it's, it's, it's just so practical and, and so funny and so rooted in reality. To set the context, Jesus, Luke chapter 12, Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee. He's at a banquet. He's gone to a banquet. He's been invited. And he's had some already some discussions with, uh, with the people there. And there's been some disagreements. But Jesus has had his say. And then he sits and he notices how the people are taking seats at the banquet. Jesus has been an honored guest, but he looks at how other people are taking their seats. And he uses this as an example to teach humility. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast... Do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, there's the humiliation, then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he'll say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus used that same application. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled one other time. When he told a parable about a Pharisee and a publican, a tax collector, going to pray. One gave thanks to God that he was better than other people in his pride. Oh, thank you. I'm not like this awful tax collector. I'm, and Pharisees were very religious, very proud people, incredibly proud. And yet the sinful tax collector recognized they were both sinners. And he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said of the two which went away forgiven by God, tax collector. And then he used that same application. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. We do not presume to earn exaltation through false humility. We recognize honestly, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but see yourself who you are, a sinner lost, unable to help ourselves, who by the grace of God, the love of Jesus, were saved. It was a gift. We couldn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Neither do the people around us but we celebrate when they find salvation as well. And if they haven't met Jesus yet, we love them. We don't judge them. We love them. We don't go soft on sin. We're salt and light in this world. But we're humble in the way we approach people with humility and respect. That's what the Bible teaches. I know sometimes we want to fly off the handle and come down hard on people, but this is what the Bible teaches. When we submit to God, recognize that He's God and we aren't, a wonderful thing happens. God gives a great gift to the humble. God's gift to the humble. Peter will conclude that part of our passage today with this. We look in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Peter writes, Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. We quote this verse all the time, but we tear it out of its context. This verse in context is that for the humble, God has a gift. For those who submit their lives to the Lord, that He is our master. And we serve Him and others. We put others before ourselves. It's not that we think less of ourselves. We just don't often think of ourselves at all. We're so busy thinking of the Lord and loving others. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do that, you're not forgotten. Eventually, God says, you will be rewarded and exalted. But you find even secular studies show that people in serving professions, people who with the passion of their lives give it away for others on their behalf, it might just be pushing the wheelchair of somebody disabled. It might be caring for them in home care or in a hospital setting or extended family. People who care for others tend to be the people who are most blessed in life and feel it and understand it. They don't feel they've gone without. 
They feel that God has blessed them incredibly. Cast your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. The Greek word anxiety means you're being pulled apart. You're being pulled apart. Your fear, your, your worry, it's pulling at you. You can't sleep. It, it hurts you. Why? Why would it do that? You're not humble. <laughs> you say, Pastor, that makes no sense. Listen to this. Humility, remember the basis of it, knowing who you are? I'm a child of God, a sinner forgiven. I'm not God. My care is not in my hands, it's in God's hands. Every detail of my life is not left up to me, it's in God's hands. Nothing's too big and nothing's too small. It's not, Lord, you take care of the big things and everything else I'll take care of. Lord, you take care of Sunday morning, I'll take care of the rest of the week. Lord, you take care of what I drop in the offering plate, that's yours to, to oversee and hopefully the church gets it right. But... The rest of the money I make the decision on. No. True humility is understanding that God is God and our care is in His hands. It leaves no place for worry or anxiety. That's been cast upon Him because it's His job to take care of us. We have no anxiety because we're in God's hands. And that's what these people needed to hear because they're coming through persecution even up to and including death, terrible deaths in public as the world seeks to humiliate them but is unable to because they're in Jesus' hands. When we do that, we're taken care of. Jesus, in one of the most beautiful passages, invites you to lay down your struggles with worry and trying to be God and take care of the details in your life and to give them over to Him. That's what Jesus meant when He said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened. That's a worrisome person. That's an anxious person. And I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's gift to the humble is rest. God's gift to the humble is peace. And of course, when we think of peace, we again turn to Philippians. Think of Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and it's taken care of, that is the same activity as casting your cares upon Him. Prayer and petition, give it to God. Give it all to God. And when you do that, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's our gift. A life at rest. A life at rest. Of peace. Pastor of Lancaster Baptist Church in the States, big church in California, author of many good books, speaker on the radio, his In the Word radio program is Pastor Paul Chapel. Speaking of the peace of Christians, he said this Because of the empty tomb, we have peace. 
Because of his resurrection, we can have peace even during even the most troubling of times because we know he is in control of all that happens in the world. He is my God and he is in control. When we grasp that in humility, we have a peace that surpasses human understanding. Friends, this is what we need. We may not be facing the fiery trial that they did in Peter's time, but our society has definitely turned a corner. You who were once, as Judeo-Christian people with morality, you were once the cornerstone foundation and the strength of our nations in the West. You're now being identified as the source of all of our problems. It's only going to get worse until the Lord comes. So be prepared Get hold of these important teachings that Peter has for us. May we clothe ourselves with humility. That's not a weakness in Christ. That is our strength. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. It's a good morning after a long and good week. Thank you for the children, Lord, in our midst. They are the future of the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you for faithful families that allowed them to know Jesus. And Lord, may these little ones grow up, uh, Lord, sensing God's presence in the lives of older believers around them. May we who are older be examples of humility and love and forgiveness to those who are growing up in the faith. And Lord, may they too grasp those essential truths that when, Lord, we are humble, we are not weak, but we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Master. And we now live not for ourselves, but we live for Christ. And in doing that, we serve those around us. Thank you, Lord, for that true equality that we find in Jesus rather than one the world uh, champions, but which is which is unjust and unattainable. Lord, strengthen your people for these days because this world needs Jesus more than they ever have. And may they experience his love and his truth through your church. This is our desire and this is our prayer. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this week.